0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Every Square Inch, where we engage every square inch of God's world with God's worldview. My name is Robert Cunningham, and thanks as always for listening. My deepest apologies for the delay in this podcast. We've taken more time than usual off, but uh, in the same way COVID initially threw off my schedule, so has all the civil unrest, I, I did need to take a break from this podcast to Put some thought and teaching into uh, what is happening in our country, and um, some of that uh, more in-depth thoughts will be uh, recorded in a podcast soon. But it is past time for me to conclude what I began uh, seemingly ages ago, and that is my series on deconversion. And this is prompted by the Christian deconversion of celebrities Rhett and Link, and in my response, I have tried my best to offer thoughts, not just to those who have left the Christian faith like Rhett and Link, but you know, to, to seekers and skeptics as well. I suppose this is my best attempt at an apologetic of the Christian faith. And if you will recall, the way I've come about this is by looking at the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness. These are the higher pursuits of humanity. And my contention is that they ultimately end in God as manifested in the historical person of Jesus. Um, In responding to Rhett's deconversion, I spoke about the truth of God. In responding to Link's deconversion, I spoke about the beauty of God. Now in this episode, I want to begin a conversation about the goodness of God. Goodness speaks more to the issue of morality, what is morally good. Now, while Rhett seemed to have an issue with the truth of Christianity and Link seemed to have an issue with the beauty of Christianity, both of them had an issue with the goodness of Christianity. There were aspects of the Christian faith and worldview that they simply believed were wrong, not necessarily wrong in the sense of not true, but wrong in the sense of not good. And what's helpful about their stories is they articulate, in a very compelling way, uh, what I believe are the two greatest objections to the goodness of the Christian faith within the Western culture. Within the framework of Western society, Christianity is not good because of two things, the judgment of God and the sexual ethics of God. And it's Western society that is the key here. What you need to understand is that other cultures have different objections to the goodness of Jesus. Uh, For example, uh, the Middle East, there is no objection to the idea of God's judgment and sexual ethic. But they have a real problem when Jesus says, you have to hate your father and mother to be my disciple. When he says, I have not come to bring peace but the sword, for I will set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. The idea that our loyalty to Jesus must be greater than family loyalty is horrific in traditional cultures, but American individualism doesn't struggle with that as much. And the point I'm making here at the outset is we dare not assume that our cultural worldview is the exclusively good worldview. What troubles us doesn't trouble others, and that's important to bear in mind when evaluating the goodness of a worldview, it is incredibly arrogant to presume that we are the final arbiters of goodness. Unless we are a perfect culture, and surely we are not so brazen to make this claim, then we have our blind spots when it comes to our definitions of what is good. So what if the African view of justice and sexuality is right and we are wrong? The Christian conviction is that only God's culture A culture referred to by Jesus as the kingdom of God is the perfect culture, which means God's culture will have an affirmation and critique for every culture of fallen humanity. And I think this is so when it comes to Western conceptions of judgment and sexuality. I understand that the very idea of a divine judgment day and a divine sexual ethic to our culture, that cannot be good. But what if we're wrong? What if our definition of goodness is misplaced? I would like to take up the challenge of demonstrating why the Christian vision of judgment and sexuality, far from being bad, are in reality good. Now, originally I was going to try to tackle both of those in this podcast, but the more I thought through things, the more I realized that was way too ambitious. So this is turning into a five-part series now. I, I, I just I need an episode for each of these topics because they're so important in our culture. But today, let's pick up the issue of judgment first. Now, you know the objection, the idea of us dying, uh, facing the judgment of God, and that God sentencing us to an eternal destiny of heaven or hell. How could this ever be good? What I want us to do is set aside all visions of hellfire, eternal burning, and so forth, set that aside for a moment and just consider the concept of justice and judgment itself. My contention is that for God to be good, he must judge, and we unwittingly demand this to be so. I don't know anyone who has a problem judging when they are the ones being wronged. If I am lied to, stolen from, betrayed, cheated, harmed, Heck, if someone cuts me off in traffic, I am unable to suppress this demand I have for justice. But here's the problem. The moment I admit justice, I, at the same time, condemn myself. Because if I admit that lying is wrong, then I must immediately ask, have I lied? If I'm going to get angry when someone hurts me, then I must ask, have I hurt others? You can't have it both ways. You can't have an existence where you demand right and wrong and yet expect exemption from that same existence. This is Paul's brilliant argument in Romans 2, where he is trying to demonstrate why all of us stand condemned before divine justice. Here's what he says. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you see his logic? Every one of us judges. We can't help but to do so. We demand right and wrong from this world. But Paul's point is that in demanding justice, we demand our own condemnation, because we do not live up to the very standard that we demand. Again, you can't have it both ways. So take the idea of divine judgment off the table. You don't agree with God's sexual ethic? Fine. Define your own ethic. I don't care. You devise your own moral code where you determine what is just and unjust. Now, imagine you die and your day of reckoning is your own standard of justice. You are the judge. You judge yourself based upon what you have demanded from the world. How would you stand? Anyone with an ounce of self-awareness and honesty would have to admit that they have spent their life falling miserably short of what they themselves have held up as the standard of justice. Do you see? Either justice is a thing or it's not. If it's not, then quit acting like it is. Quit demanding it of the world. But if it is, then you have to play by the same rules. And even according to your own rules, you're in trouble because you've broken them repeatedly so. But it gets even more ominous because this is just a thought experiment, right? The reality is that you are not your own judge. I am not my own judge. As the saying goes, only God can judge me. (laughs) But I don't think we know what we are saying when we say that. It's true, only God can judge on an ultimate level. He is the ultimate judge. But that means we are judged by his standard, not ours. And his standard is nothing short of pure justice and righteousness. This is where Paul's argument goes. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Did you see how he switches from our judgment of others to God's judgment of us? His point is this. You can't judge the world and then tell God he can't judge the world. And that includes you and me. Now, I suppose at this point you could go the secular route and just assume there is no God or divine judgment. But in so doing, you are admitting that justice is not truly a thing. Justice isn't a a transcendent truth grounded in a transcendent standard of justice. There isn't a foundational, uh, divine, original, declared right and wrong. We have merely invented the idea of justice as kind of a social construct to get along with each other. But does anyone really believe that? Certainly no one lives that way. We live as if there is a right and wrong that transcends every human civilization and it's because deep down we know it to be so. The reason we all have this irrepressible demand for justice is that we are made in the image of God. And the transcendent law of right and wrong is embedded into the very fiber of our being. We did not invent justice in order to get along justice is an inescapable reality within the design of our creator. So here is the reality. Justice is a thing. We know it to be true. We live as if it is true. But in so doing, we have to ask how we measure up to justice, not just to our own standard, but to the ultimate, ultimate standard of justice, God, the creator and definer of what is right and wrong. And so we are trapped by justice. We cannot escape our standard, let alone God's standard. Okay, but we're conceptualizing this in human terms. Isn't God above this? Won't he just kind of look past all our wrongs in the end? Because after all, isn't God love? Yes, God is love. And it is precisely because God is love that God is righteously angry over injustice. I want to suggest that indifference, which is what we have defined as love, and which is essentially what we want and expect from God. We want an indifferent God when it comes to our judgment. I want to suggest that indifference is not loving at all. In fact, it's the opposite of love. Love demands anger over what is wrong. I'm not talking hatred. Hatred is unrighteous anger not based upon love's violation but based upon sinful impulses. Let me choose an ethic we can all agree upon here, the abuse of children, okay? If if childhood abuse does not anger you, then there is something wrong with you. There is something exceedingly deficient with your love. True love gets angry. In fact, anger is the application of love. When what you love is threatened, harmed, transgressed, and so forth. Now, this is what you have to understand about God. God is, in fact, love. And I mean pure, burning, white, hot, righteous love. God loves the world. God loves people. God loves his glory 10,000 times more than we have ever expressed or experienced love. Which means indifference is off the table. Every slight of justice, every wrong committed, every transgression against others and against God disturbs the love of God, and he is just too loving not to be angry. So we all want a loving God, just like we all like to say only God can judge me. We all want to say God is love. But again, I'm not so sure we understand what we are asking for in that. A loving God should cause us to tremble, rightly understood. Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon that in our modern times would be unacceptable, entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. (laughs) No sermon titles like that these days. But one could easily retitle it Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, because his anger flows from his love. And so you take the justice of God that all of us demand, you take the love of God that all of us want, and together they form that dirty word that none of us like to mention, hell. The reason I spoke so much about justice and love before getting to hell is because I wanted those two impulses that we share with God to frame the discussion. Much of our conceptions of hell are framed by the Middle Ages, particularly Dante's Inferno. Uh, Dante's poetry canonized the apocalyptic imagery used in the Bible to describe hell. But the purpose of that imagery, apocalyptic imagery in scripture, is to give understanding, to give expression to that which we cannot understand. This is true of heaven as well. We, We cannot conceptualize heaven's goodness, and so the Bible uses imagery. Uh, that we can conceptualize to help us understand heaven. And the same is true of hell. The imagery is not necessarily to be taken literally, but its idea behind it most certainly is. Hell isn't to be viewed as literal flames, but it is literally that bad. And perhaps you are tempted to say of the doctrine of hell, okay, I get it. There must be some justice. There must be some anger over wrongs committed, but this seems so extreme. Well, first, may I point out the irony of our culture who rejects the idea of judgment and punishment of God, certainly the idea of hell, while simultaneously embracing the cancel culture? One wrong move, one wrong word, anything that does not fit the law of political correctness in our culture, even if that is a newly discovered wrong committed many years ago, and you will face the wrath of supposed tolerance." by being banished as exiles under the unrelenting judgment of culture. We embrace a culture like that and then tell God he's too extreme? Make no mistake, we have come to accept and celebrate even swift, severe, unmerciful judgment when it is our standards that are not met, particularly our sexual standards, which we will get to in the next episode. But that irony aside... To make sense of the severity of God's judgment, we have to take on the perspective of God, not man. From our perspective, it seems like an overreaction. From God's perspective, not so much. Let me explain. According to our own accepted concepts of justice, we acknowledge and agree upon three determining factors. First, we consider the severity of the offense. So, jaywalking is not treated the same as homicide. The problem, however, is that though biblical justice does recognize that certain transgressions are more heinous than others, biblical justice at the same time considers the intentions of our hearts. So Jesus views lust in our hearts as embryonic adultery, hatred in our hearts as embryonic murder. To some degree, when you evaluate the thoughts and intentions of my heart, I am as bad as they come. The second thing we consider is the recurrence of the offense, meaning there are stricter penalties for repeat offenders than first-time offenders. Well, again, from the perspective of God, who sees the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and minds, what are we, if not daily, hourly, moment-by-moment, offenders of his justice? And then thirdly, there's something that goes a bit unnoticed but is so crucial to understanding justice. We also recognize the worth And the value of the offended party. Meaning this there is no outrage of justice if someone steps on a cockroach. There is an elevated indignation when someone mistreats a dog. There is an even more elevated indignation when someone mistreats a person. This is what we're seeing in our country as I record this. You don't think we believe in justice and righteous anger? Look at the reaction to George Floyd's killing. And at the center of our outrage, our right outrage, our righteous outrage, is the image of his dehumanizing death. I think that's why this one was different. It was so dehumanizing. They all are, but this one just captured it. He wasn't regarded with any value, worth, dignity that a human being deserves. This is why the Memphis... Sanitation strike was so powerful in its simplicity. Just that, that sign, that one slogan, I am a man. I am a person. I have dignity. I have honor. I have value. I have worth. And that matters when it comes to justice. You can't treat a human like an animal. The value and worth of the offended party matters when it comes to justice. Even to, to even threaten the office of the president of the United States is a felony punishable up to five years in prison just to threaten the president. Why? Because there's something special about Donald Trump or Barack Obama? No. Because we have ascribed value, worth, to the highest office in our land. Okay, now back to God. The highest value, the greatest glory, infinite supremacy. If you think I am a man bears holy weight, and it does. What does I am God hold? Eternal weight of glory. Now, according to our own standards of justice and righteous indignation that we all agree upon and we all act according to, what does consistent repetition of the most heinous offenses against the highest value in all existence deserve? From a man-centered perspective, the doctrine of hell makes no sense. From a God-centered perspective, we begin to tremble at how much sense it makes. What exactly is the nature of hell? There's great debate and a wealth of scholarship to turn to besides Dante's Inferno. And people smarter than me have uh, wide-ranging opinions, but but this much is true. For God to be good, God must judge. For God to be good, God must judge love. And therefore, for God to be good, injustice must anger his love. And that includes me. Now again, you you can say, well, I just don't believe any of this. If there, if there were a God, then I suppose this must be true of him, but I don't believe in God. But again, the problem is that you don't live that way. Nobody does. We can't. We live like justice is true. We live like love is true. But if God is not true, then you have no reason to believe or live as if these are true. My friends, we are caught. Either give up on justice and love or submit to the demands of justice and love. The former is impossible, which makes the latter inevitable. There is a God. That God is good. And because that God is good, we must face the justice of righteous anger That flows from his love. But the Bible is one big setup for its glorious but. But let me tell you what this good God has done. He has found a way to maintain the goodness of his justice and yet spare us the consequences of his justice. You want to talk about a good God? How about a God who himself chooses to bear the indignation of his love? Whatever hell is, Jesus took it. And our God has found a way to satisfy his love. This is how love wins. Not by indifference to what is wrong, but by taking what is wrong upon himself because of love. God has found a way to love the very ones who deserve the righteous anger of his burning love. Friends, if that's not a good God, then I don't know what a good God is. Thank you for listening. We will be back very soon to discuss the goodness of God's ethic, particularly God's sexual ethic, on the next episode of Every Square Inch.